Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to EX in Vienna. Um, I'm here with Professor Taggart and Cole, and we are here to talk about um, the evidence uh, base for coronary revascularization and where we are in 2017. Thank you both for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So I thought with the uh, new guidelines being developed imminently, we could start by talking about where we are um, and what we're likely to see in the, the latest revision. Well, I don't know what will be in the next version that uh, not only uh, not even out for review, uh, it will be released next year at the ESC and EACT's meeting uh, next fall. Maybe we can take a step back and look a little bit at the main recommendation that we out three years ago. Uh, in the 2014 uh, joint ESC EACS guidelines. Uh, if we look at um, free vessel disease, there is a clear distinction that has been made according to the uh, syntax score. Uh, when the syntax score is low, that, that is below 23, uh, both techniques can be, let's say, recommended to uh, about the same extent PCI or cabbage, while when uh, the anatomy of the patient uh, shows an intermediate or high syntax score. Uh, the results uh, really uh, favor cabbage with a strong class 1 recommendation in favor of cabbage. If we look at left main disease, that's a little different, although it's also based on the syntax score. We can discuss later about uh, risk scores and functionalities. But uh, when a patient has a lower a syntax score, or an intermediate syntax score, both techniques can be recommended, uh, a little more maybe in favor of, uh, of cabbage, while when the patient with left main disease has a high syntax score that is above 33, uh, then cabbage uh, assumes a class one recommendation and PCIs, uh, PCI assumes a class three recommendation. So I think that's where we standed three years ago. And the question is, do we have new evidence uh, that we think could actually change this recommendation nowadays? Absolutely. And with the advent of Syntax 2, and how, how is that going to be incorporated? Where do you see that going as being incorporated into that evidence base? Well, with Syntax 2, you get more, you have an addition of clinical score uh, that obviously takes various clinical consideration into account. So uh, it may balance a little bit the overall risk uh, in favor or disfavor of either technique. I mean, obviously, and that's something we emphasize very strongly also in the guideline, when you discuss a patient in the heart team, which is also key is that to have this patient discuss in the heart team, you look at various scores, and you should make a difference between scores uh, that will assess short-term result, short-term mortality up to 30 days, and scores that will uh, assess long-term mortality. I think this is very important to make the difference because yes. sometimes people are comparing uh, different things that should not be compared. 
Professor Taggart, so how do you see this being implemented in the present day? Where do you feel that we are adequately utilising syntax in a, on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment? Well, I think the key thing that's developed since the last guidelines, as Philip said, there was a clear distinction between what happened to patients with three-vessel disease without left main and patients with left main disease. And very briefly, the patients with three-vessel disease who had intermediate or high syntax scores had a seven to nine percent absolute survival advantage at five years and with actively diverging survival curves, suggesting that at five years we're underestimating the real benefit of cabbage. We saw something different in patients with left main because now in contrast to three vessel disease, the patients with either lower or intermediate syntax scores, so below 33, actually seem to do at least as well with stents as cabbage, if indeed not better. And that number is critical because that's what then underpinned the XL trial. There are only enrolled patients with syntax scores below 33. And what we've seen in XL is that overall at three years, no difference in the composite endpoint of death, MI or stroke. But what we also see, if you look at those numbers in more detail, there is a worrying mortality signal for stents. Because by three years, the survival curves have crossed in favor of cabbage, and there's a 2.4% absolute difference in survival. But the fact that these curves are now actively diverging means that there's a strong possibility that at five years, there will be an, a statistically significant and clinically important survival benefit for cabbage. And the other crucial thing about XL is, un, in contrast to syntax, the cabbage patients did not have an increased risk of stroke. So if those numbers are confirmed at five years, what this might do to a new set of guidelines is downgrade the current recommendation for stenting in this lower risk group, in my opinion. And just remind us, for XL, is this a new generation stents comparatively to the Texas stents used in the original syntax trial? Some of them were indeed a newer generation of stents, but we've always argued as cardiac surgeons, stents were never the problem. The three benefits of bypass grafting are bypass grafts to the mid-coronary vessel, the use of mammary arteries, which elute nitric oxide into the coronary circulation, and the potential to have complete revascularization. So we always argued it didn't ma matter whether it was balloon angioplasty, bare metal stent, drug-eluting stent, new generation of drug-eluting stent there are fundamental differences between what a bypass operation does and what a stent does. Yeah, this is really something that, that uh, we can never overemphasize because it's so important. important. And uh, already in the first guidelines actually that we did together in 2010 with the ESC, we, we in, in, inserted a nice picture showing the difference uh, that actually we should use when uh, explaining the difference between the two techniques to a patient. patient yes. And again, uh, I think one key thing is to discuss with the patient and to discuss also before within the heart team. And we are saying, okay, in, in, when the syntax score is low, um, both techniques can be offered to the patient, PCI and cabbage, but the patient should uh, be able to understand the benefits of each technique. PCI has some advantages, obviously uh, you don't open the chest, uh, you have a, a lesser uh, 
shorter length of stay, uh, you have maybe less risk of infection at the beginning and so forth, but the risk of uh, uh, repeat target revascularization or incomplete revascularization uh, is, is important. So uh, what you explain, and, and, and I think what is very important to especially for complex case, obviously non-urgent case, we are not talking here uh, about patient with acute uh, coronary events, is that the patient should have time to think, to discuss with, with his family, with his GP, yes. with the referring cardiologist, and that's not when you're half asleep on the cath uh, table that you can decide whether you want a, a stand in your left main or your proximal LED or not. Yeah. I completely agree, yes. And something, so we are taking things forward a little bit, just in the essence of time. We touched on, we, we've touched on selection. Once you've got the patient on the table and you're making interoperative decisions or preoperative decisions about what type of, of, of graft is best for the patient. I know you very leading the art trial and, and, and many other kind of, you, Take, it, take us forward, tell us about, about where okay, you are so, with that so far. Um, we published the interim analysis of the oh. ART trial, which is a randomised trial of 3,100 patients to single or bilateral ITA grafts. And we published the interim analysis at five years last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what we showed was, and it disappointed many mm. people, was that overall there was no difference in either mortality or the composite of mortality, MI or stroke because people had expected to see a benefit. Oh. We will have the complete 10-year follow-up data in December of this year, and we expect to produce the 10-year outcomes in around March 2018. But while people have been disappointed by the outcome of our, I've tried to stress a few things. There may be a number of important reasons why there was no difference at five years. The first is five years may be simply too early, and this is why our primary endpoint was always 10 years, because we know that vein graft failure is relatively low to five years and then accelerates. There was extraordinarily high use of guideline-based medical therapy in both groups at 90% of aspirin, beta blockers and statins. That may have slowed vein graft failure. Another important thing we observed was that 20% of the single ITA group also had a radial artery in addition to vein, and we know that radial artery gives you better outcomes at five years, so that may have narrowed the difference between a single ITA and bilateral ITA. And finally, we noticed a strong differential crossover. 2% of patients with a single ITA actually got bilateral ITA, whereas 14% of patients with bilateral ITA had a single ITA. So that is a strong signal that some of the participating surgeons were not as experienced in doing bilateral ITA as they claimed. So for example, I did 440 of the operations myself and my crossover rate was under 2%. So there are a number of signals in art that may explain why there was no obvious difference at five years, but within the next six months, we will have a very clear idea about the, the definitive 10-year outcomes. And I would like to also emphasize a point that David just made and we discussed this morning in another TV interview. Uh, I mean, these patients actually, whether they get PCI or cabbage, veins or, or radial or atrial uh, memory or internal atrial memory, uh, a key point obviously is the 
secondary prevention that we're going to offer to those patients to make sure that the graft patency being a vein or not a vein uh, remains optimal. And that yes. this is really something key. And these patients should really understand that they have some form of ongoing atherosclerotic disease and to decrease the risk of recurrence, uh, they should take uh, optimal medication and, and adopt uh, lifestyle changes. Completely agree. And if, if it turns out that at 10 years you don't see the morbidity and mortality benefit that you were expecting to see with art, people will obviously start rediscussing optimal vein graft strategies. Um, there have been another number of other trials, such as the VEST trial, talk, looking at optimizing vein graft patency. Tell us a little bit about your experience with that? So I think we're seeing much better vein graft patency than previously. We've just talked about the role of optimal medical therapy. But there are three interventions just now that seem to have a powerful effect in protecting vein graft patency. There's a so-called no-touch harvest technique where you harvest the vein along with its surrounding pedicle fat. There's a trial from Korea, the SAVE RITA trial, which showed exceptionally good outcome of vein grafts if they're attached to the side of the mammary artery rather than the aorta. They have patencies over 95% at one year. And one assumes or presumes that that may be because nitric oxide from the mammary artery is being eluted into the vein. And the third, I think potentially very important development, and I have a conflict of interest because I have research sponsored by the company, is an external mesh stent for vein grafts. We, we are now just reported at the AATS, the patency of these stents at six to nine months is over 90%. And we've got a small cohort of patients whom we've now followed to five years, where the perfect patency of those stents at one year is completely maintained at five years. And this has never been described in the literature before. So I think the, there are potentially important game changers for the use of uh, veins. And the advantage of the stent, the external mesh stent, is it takes less than a minute to apply it to the vein. So it's a technically very easy innovation, unlike most other things in cardiac surgery, which are difficult. Small incisions, robotics, off-pump, multiple arterial grafts, endoscopic techniques. So I think in the next year or two, we may see the, the traditional view of vein grafts coming back, <coughs> the swindle, swinging back to the midline again. Physical, what was your feeling on that? Um, do you agree? Yes, I think it's a very promising technique. We'll see what the long-term result would be, but I think that with all these uh, promising results, <coughs> excuse me, it could uh, certainly uh, be uh, at some point discussed in the guidelines. And so we've talked about um, grafting strategies. We the, another big question that comes up when people talk about coronary vascularization is off-pump versus on-pump. <coughs> Been going on for many years. The debate. Where are we now um, with that? What, what's your feeling? Who wants to go first? I think we have quite a clear idea of what's <coughs> happening now because there have been two results, two large trials published. Okay. Okay. We can edit. Here we go. Did you want to drink? Okay. Sorry. There have been two large trials published with five-year results. The first is the coronary trial, 4,500 patients. I was the European principal investigator of that. We published it in the New England Journal last year. And what we basically showed was that at five years, there's absolutely no difference in survival between on and off pump cabbage. And that's important because there had been a lot of bad press about off pump cabbage saying that 
outcomes were inferior in terms of survival. However, more recently, the five-year results of the RUBY trial have been published. This was a trial of around 2,500 patients, and it did show worse outcomes at five years for patients undergoing off-pump surgery. However, the RUBY trial had previously been heavily criticised when they published the one-year outcomes because of a high crossover rate from off to on-pump cabbage and suggesting the crossover rate was just under 13%. And at that time in the STS database, the crossover rate was 4%. So it really strongly suggested that the surgeons in the RUBY trial were not highly experienced. And clearly, if you have bad results at one year, you are going to have bad results at five years. But I think if you look at the more definitive trial, both in terms of number of patients and the experience of the surgeons participating, so for the coronary trial, all participating surgeons had to have done at least 100 off-pump cases. Okay. And I think that's why coronary had much better results, which is if the technique is done by an experienced surgeon, the results are at very least equivalent to on-pump. But the importance of being able to do off-pump is in the octogenarian with a calcified aorta. In certain other clinical situations where you need to be competent at doing off-pump surgery, mainly to reduce the risk of stroke by doing not only off-pump surgery, but using a no-touch aortic technique. But you cannot do that as an occasional operation, so you need to be doing it frequently or not at all. I fully agree. I mean, it's, it's very important to combine off-pump with, if possible, uh, no uh, touch of the aorta. And it's extremely important to have uh, regular experience on that. If you do a case a month just because it's a very complicated case, your result will not be very good. So, I mean, th there may be other um, explanations and maybe, you know, off-pump and on-pump. Uh, on the long run, there is not that much difference, but, uh, but the, the experience is, is obviously key. And this has been emphasized several times when discussing, for example, the RUBY trial. When another part of the discussion after Ruby was that instead of some of us, some, some surgeons doing default off pump surgery, the default should be on pump. And then in the cases where they were high risk, where there was evidence to suggest that on pu off pump would be better, then those patients should be selected for off pump. Do you still think there's a case for an on pump surgeon and an off pump surgeon? or? Well, you have to balance uh, that with experience. Uh, if if you I mean, if you would discuss, for example, with Paul Surgeon, who is really someone like, like David promoting uh, off-pump a lot, he would tell you that you can do probably 99% of your case uh, off-pump. Uh, other people do most of their case on-pump. So I think uh, uh, if you feel comfortable with doing your case off-pump, it's probably fine that you do most of them. You also have to take into account whether you work in a training center or not. Yeah. You have to teach people and obviously uh, a trainee, a fellow, uh, has to be able to do both. I mean, you cannot imagine that someone doesn't can, cannot go on pump. Um, so, so I'm not sure what the the perfect answer is, I think it should be, uh, as in most instances, a balance between the two techniques. Yeah. That you're able to use whatever is most appropriate. Like when you do a, a AAA case, an abdominal aneurysm, you should be able to do uh, EVAR and open. Yeah. Well, I think when I give a lecture on off-pump surgery, my concluding slide says that for the majority of patients, it's more important to use multiple arterial grafts than whether you've done it on or off pump. I agree. But what I w and, and I say that because despite the five-year results of ART, the long-term patency rates of arterial grafts 
compared to vein grafts are very different just now. And it's difficult to believe that that will not translate into clinical benefit. But again, I go back to the point. So I, as I say, for most patients, I don't think it makes a great deal of difference whether they're done on or off pump surgery. But when you are faced with a difficult patient in whom everyone would accept that that patient is better done off pump, that operation should be done by somebody who's experienced in doing it and who's not prepared to say, oh, well, I'll have a go at this. So the surgeon who says to me, I reserve my, my off-pump surgery for my high-risk cases, I think misunderstands yeah. the situation. And we are coming slowly towards the end, but as a quick note before we finish, um, there was a, a debate about increasing minimal access surgery and coronary revascularization, minimal access surgery is something that hasn't quite taken off as I think many people expected. Do you, either you feel that there is room to become more minimal access in coronary surgery or do you think that that boat's sort of sailed and that we've... Well, there are more and more industry-developed techniques that allow to do that. Uh, I think also uh, in that overall range you should consider hybrid techniques uh, and it was difficult to promote them in the guidelines beyond like a 2B maybe considered uh, because that's we have very few data on that and very few data that are randomized although there are some ongoing trials. Um, I think for example hybrid technique where you do a minimally invasive uh, Lima to the to Lita to the LED and Lex complex uh, PCI on the right or circumflex territory, uh, especially for an elderly patient or patient with comorbidity, it does make a lot of sense. So to come back to your original question, I think yes, minimally access surgery has probably some future, but we should make sure again that the patient get the best crafts and an optimal complete revascularization as needed. So, so I would agree with Philip again, and all I would say is. Minimally invasive surgery is a magnitude more difficult than off-pump surgery and therefore I think is there a role for it? Absolutely yes, but it needs to be, it will always be a niche operation and needs to be concentrated in a few centres where you get people who can really develop the expertise at doing it. But you're never going to have a situation where people will occasionally do minimally invasive surgery. Thank you very much both of you. As a final closing remark, one question to each of you. Which, what is the most exciting thing that you think we'll be looking out for in the next sort of few years in coronary revascularization? Who wants to go first? Well, I'm looking forward <laughs> to the results, uh, the 10-year result, the primary endpoint, like you said, David, of the ARTS trial. Um, certainly the new guidelines coming out next year. And then down the road, but much later, there is the new ROMA trial, which uh, is exciting too. Excellent. Accepting my previous uh, conflict of interest because I'm an investigator for this external stand, if I had to make a prediction, what will be the biggest change to our practice in five years from now? I believe, unless we've missed something, I believe it will be fairly widespread use of external stents for vein grafts. Wonderful. Thank you both very much for your time. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank, Thank you. you for the interview. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. 
Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.